Welcome to the official podcast for the Society of Urodynamics, Female Pelvic Medicine, and Urogenital Reconstruction. Here you will find podcasts highlighting clinically relevant topics, ongoing SUFU initiatives, SUFU member highlights, and much, much more. So our next speaker is uh, one of our partners at Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Brad Gill. Um, Brad is a, a trained biomedical engineer by background and has a, an extremely unique ability to take somewhat rather complicated topics such as uh, neuromodulation and some of the basis for that and really dumb it down for people like myself to really understand. And so I asked Brad to, uh, to speak on some of the common terminology that we discuss about neuromodulation, but maybe help us understand a little bit better as to what that really means. So thank you, Brad. All right, good morning. So um, as Dr. Versavita mentioned, part of my task is to see if I can take neuromodulation and break it down on a pretty simple level. So uh, some of this may be basic for some of you, some of it may be insightful, um, but the intent is to really be kind of thought-provoking here. So as Dr. Versavita mentioned, before I was a urologist, I was an engineer. And uh, all this neuromodulation stuff I do, nerd out about this every now and then, but uh, we're going to try and make it simple today. So the game plan is really to cover this in three big pieces. The first is to touch a little on neurophysiology, then talk a little bit about what we know and what we don't know about neuromodulation, and round things out with some thoughts on where we can go. So uh, neurophysiology made easy. Action potentials are really the basis of this. And you have to remember the body is a digital thing. You either fire action potentials or you don't. They're on or they're off. And these are digital signals that travel through the nerves that cause some type of downstream effect. This happens with the chain reaction of membrane depolarization. The voltage in the nerve changes. The ions move in and out. This travels down and then the end effect of the nerve is triggered. And again, this is the basis for how electrical neuromodulation works. So everything we talk about here is going to be relevant to sacral, tibial, genital, really any type of nerve target you can think of. The way that I think is really easy to explain this is thinking about water filling up a bucket. So if your nerve is the bucket, water are the ions. An action potential is when the bucket is full. If the bucket's not full, you're not firing an action potential. It's really that simple. Okay? So... You have to remember, though, your bucket's leaky. Ions are constantly moving in and out of the cells. That membrane voltage is changing. It's really a dynamic phenomenon. So with neurostimulation, what you're trying to do is get the bucket to be full before the water leaks out. So this is a little cartoon we did a few years back uh, depicting really what happens, and I'll step through a few segments of this. In the lower left-hand corner, you can see a graph there, and what that is is it's the voltage within the nerve. The little dotted line that runs across is a threshold. If you can depolarize that nerve to that threshold, you fire an action potential. So the ions, as they move around, they'll move in and out of the cell. Eventually, you'll get depolarization. The chain reaction occurs. The action potential travels down the ion, and you get your end effect from that nerve firing. So this is really what we're trying to do with neuromodulation, is control those action potentials. So what about the stimulator? What does that do? Well, in this case, The graph on this slide is the stimulator and the stimulus that's coming out of it. So there's your amplitude, that's how tall those bars are, your pulse width, how wide. So as that stimulator fires its stimulus, ions are going to come out of the electrodes, they're going to stimulate the nerves, and that's really what's going to cause the action potentials to occur. 
And if we look at that on a little bit of an idealized scale, your electrodes up top, your nerve membrane is on the bottom there. You have the ions moving in and out of that leaky bucket. But what you're going to try and do with neurostimulation is fill that bucket up before uh, the ions all run out. So you're going to cause depolarization. You're going to fire that action potential. And if you put that together, kind of look at what the stimulator is doing, what the nerve's doing at the same time, it's exactly that. So the ions come out of the stimulator. They stimulate depolarization in the nerve. You get the action potential and the end result. So what about the settings, right? We talk a lot about neurostimulation. We hear about these settings. We don't necessarily manipulate them in any specific or templated ways, but we all have things that work for us in practice. So if you think about amplitude, this is something that's been on people's minds recently because we have voltage-controlled devices and we have current-controlled devices. A voltage-controlled device, you're adjusting the water pressure that you're filling the bucket with. In a current-controlled device, you're adjusting the flow. It's as simple as that. So that's really all those parameters mean in terms of what's changing technologically with neurostimulation. Pulse width is how long you leave the valve open. And then rate is just how often you open and close it. So if we think about amplitude in a clinical context, again, this is the pressure uh, or flow that's coming out of the neurostimulator. With a low amplitude, it's like listening to a radio that's on a, a low volume. If you're close to it, you're going to hear it. If you're a nerve that's close to a device on a low setting, you might be stimulated. And as you can see on the top there, the stimulus bars, it's just short. It's a lower amplitude. If you turn up the amplitude, you turn up the volume on the radio. You can hear it further away. So you can stimulate nerves that might be further away from your electrode. Pulse width, somewhat similar. So in this case, you're just making your duration a little bit longer in terms of how long the charge uh, comes out of the device for with a short pulse width, you can cause some depolarization of a nerve. You might not be able to get that up to the threshold. If you don't get it to a threshold, you don't fire the action potential. So pulse width, clinically, you can use to pick out different types of nerve fibers. They respond differently to different pulse widths. And the shading there basically shows the amount of charge that comes out. You increase the pulse width, you can put more charge into the nerve. You can cause a greater depolarization and you can trigger an action potential, and that's what you see on the right side there uh, with the wider pulse width. Rate, this is probably the simplest parameter to explain. It's just simply how often the device generates a pulse, and what that should correspond to is how often you're triggering that nerve to fire or create an action potential. And as your patients will tell you, this can take things from a, th a fluttering to a buzzing to kind of a thumping in terms of stimulation. What we don't really know is what this means physiologically. Electrode assignments, that's the one final parameter that you can really tweak in the devices. And what this can do, if you use two electrodes that are close together, you can create a small electrical field. However, if you go to ones that are wider apart, you may be able to stretch that or expand that electrical field. So electrode assignment allows you to really direct and steer where that's going to happen. And you can use that again to recruit nerves that you might not be able to reach. So what do we know and what don't we know? Well, the mechanism of action of, of uh, neuromodulation is still incompletely understood. We think it occurs through local reflex arcs and afferent pathways. And if you go back and you look at what's been done over the last few years, our group, the group at Penn, and others have shown that neurostimulation changes brain activity. And this happens in a dose-response fashion with amplitude. It happens if devices are on and devices are off. 
It impacts bowel, it impacts sexual function. Maybe this is through improving urinary symptoms, but probably through some crosstalk and some shared neural pathways. And again, incompletely understood. There's a lot to be learned here. How about variability in response? So disease states, we know there's indications for neuromodulation. It works well for some conditions, maybe not for others. Uh, there's patient factors, obviously. If there's aberrant anatomy or if there's problems with the nerves, it may not work very well. But there's therapy factors, too. So the leads can move, they can get displaced, they can break. You may have hardware issues, uh, battery depletion, things of that nature. And then there's the device settings. I always come back to the device settings. What are the best settings for neuromodulation? We don't know. If you look at the transitional literature, uh, going from basic science and kind of animal models into clinical ones, and also some recent clinical studies, there's been some work done on this. So it's been shown that amplitudes during implantation, if they're lower and you get responses, are associated with a higher likelihood to progress to a permanent implant and potentially a lower likelihood of a need for revision uh, or further surgeries. Pulse widths in sheep, granted, have been shown to provide a similar therapeutic efficacy if you shorten them. Our fellow uh, Jessica Rube presented this year a retrospective analysis where we showed that we can salvage a number of patients who have uncomfortable stimulation by changing their pulse widths. But again, there's not really a protocol or any established practice patterns for this. The rate of stimulation, this is something colorectal has looked at. We really haven't, but for colorectal pathologies, uh, higher frequencies of stimulation might be more beneficial for symptom control. If you look at the pain literature, they'll use ultra-high frequencies for nerve blocks, and that's been shown in animal models to uh, quelch bladder hyperactivity on demand. And then last but not least, cycling. We know Dr. Siegel has presented a few years ago a very nice study showing that if you stimulate for just part of a day or even part of an hour, you can get durable clinical response. So this suggests there's probably some neuroplasticity, something happening there that helps the patients respond. Uh, again, though, there's a lot for us to learn. So what about voltage versus current, right? This was a, a hot topic at the meeting this year. We heard some presentations on this um, and saw some things in the exhibit hall. So going back to the water pressure versus the water flow, these are both ways to adjust the electrical field. They're both ways to stimulate more nerves and, and change uh, the reach of the neuromodulation device. And to be honest with you, only time is going to tell if one is better than the other. So we really need to see what happens with the different devices and as things progress. Um, so where can we go from here? This is a little bit of a, a call to action on my end, but um, thinking back about those stimulus parameters and the way that we use neuromodulation, what else can we do with this? Well, on-demand use is something that's been looked at. This isn't cycling. This isn't intermittent. This is, I need to pee. I have urgency. I'm going to hit the button, and the bladder's going to calm down. That's been shown to be feasible in some clinical studies with urodynamics. Uh, it's also been shown very clearly in some, <clears throat> some animal models. Uh, thinking about this, less stimulation means greater device life. You're going to pull less charge out of the battery. could mean less recharge cycles for a rechargeable device. There's other benefits here, too. If you think about closed-loop bladder control, spinal cord injuries, neurogenic bladder, uh, you can couple this with devices that can facilitate voiding. Uh, this is a pretty active area of research at the VA right now. So what about the settings, coming back to those? Well, we know subthreshold stimulation can be useful in some cases. We also know that some patients will come in and say, hey, doc, it's not working anymore. I don't feel it. It's because their device is off. 
So uh, obviously amplitude is something we can work with. Pulse width, again, this is going to help you fine-tune your neural targets. Nerves respond differently to different pulse widths. So maybe improving sensation and maybe optimizing therapy there. And what about rate? Is there a different physiologic effect at higher versus lower frequency? This has been looked at some, but I think there's still more to learn. In terms of optimizing stimulus delivery, there's been some work looking at EMGs during lead placement, and the EMG response is actually more sensitive, obviously, than what you can detect with your naked eye. Uh, but beyond that, it may actually be more sensitive than patients' sensory thresholds. And then last but not least, what do our uh, sensory motor responses tell us? The literature here has kind of varied from year to year in terms of what we really want to look for, what's the most important intraoperatively, and I think uh, we can learn more there. So I'm going to leave you with this final thought. I think about neuromodulation as a prescription. So when I write Tylenol, say for a pediatric patient, I know the concentration, I know the quantity, I know the route, and I know the frequency. When you write neuromodulation for your patient, do you know those things? Do you know what the best prescription is? I think that's something we need to think about and something we need to work on in the future. Thank you. We have time for a quick question if anyone has one. Thank you for that truly excellent uh, lecture this morning. My question is on the topic of neuro, a neurogenic bladder, spinal cord injury, and the applications of this technology in that setting. You alluded to the use of animal models, and it's been very challenging for us to find a suitable animal model where we can study long-term spinal cord injury and how to deal with the details of the prescription you've alluded to at the end. Do you have any thoughts on what are good or useful animal models when we want to explore this more? What would you suggest? Sure. So uh, if you look at the rat models, they're probably the most affordable uh, to keep long-term. There's been some studies showing that relatively acute stimulation uh, after the spinal cord injury can be helpful. Um, but if you really want something that translates, you're going to think larger models, pigs, sheep, um, the sacral anatomy, the applications of the devices there are a little uh, more relevant, but then you're faced with obviously a, a high cost for a, a chronic model. Congratulations. Uh, my name is Averbeck from, from Brazil. Just a, a, a comment on the cycling effect. As uh, some years before, Medtronic has provided a warning about the risk of premature uh, battery depletion if the cycling is on, especially if this, this special feature, which is called soft start, is on. So when soft start is on, the cycling uh, interval should be at least of 60 seconds. Otherwise, it has been detected that the battery can uh, uh, be depleted more uh, frequently, more fastly. Yeah, it's an excellent question. So the the issue there is the power that it takes to run the processors and run the software and ramp the device up versus the power that it takes to actually put charge out of the electrodes uh, for the stimulation. And, and the balance there is something that will have to be figured out uh, in terms of you know how short, how long you need to run it to really conserve and maximize battery. Thank you. I have a quick question about someone who talked about spinal cord injury. My experience with patients with spinal cord injury and neuropathy as a cause of avoiding dysfunction 
and this is very gross, but this is after many years, is that if they can walk, if they have sensation, it'll work. I've had it work in diabetics, patients with cauda syndrome, patients with incomplete bladder, uh, um, uh, in, incomplete spinal cord injury. With your uh, understanding of how this works, why is it clinically that I find that walking and sensation in the genitalia are predictive of success in these patients? That's a great question. Uh, I think it all comes back to the nerve roots where everything's working locally, uh, kind of in the sacral area there. Um, there's been a number of abstracts over the year here which have looked at small groups of neurogenic patients. I think um, pulling data and really bringing numbers there may, may give us more insight. Thanks for listening to today's episode on the Sufu Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast streaming app. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter with our handle at SuFuOrg, where we'll provide real-time updates of our next podcast episode launch. And be sure to check us out on our website, www.sufuorg.com.